Hi, and welcome to the Writers Forum on WRBH. I'm David Benedetto. Today I'll be speaking with award-winning journalist and author Bianca Bosker. Uh, and she is here to talk about her latest book, Cork Dork, a wine-fueled adventure among the obsessive sommeliers, big bottle hunters, and a rogue scientist who taught me to live for taste. How are you doing today, Bianca? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. Well, well fantastic. It's great to have you on here. Um, before you started writing Cork Dork, you mostly focused on tech world and what's going on in there. So I'm wondering how you got uh, interested in the world of wine and the people that are involved in it. So it was uh, also a bit of a surprise to me. Um, I think that there's you know wine lovers who spend their weekends uh, agonizing over the choice between wines from Burgundy and Bordeaux. I would spend my weekends agonizing over the choice between wines from a bottle and a box. And <laughs> I really got intrigued when I discovered this world of cork dorks, uh, which is really the restaurant industry term for the most obsessive and knowledgeable wine lovers among them. And, you know, we think of wine as being this beverage of pleasure, but these sommeliers put themselves through a stunning amount of pain. And I was just fascinated that these were the most masochistic hedonists I'd ever met. I mean, they <laughs> licked rocks to train their palates. They spent their precious days off at these wine sommelier competitions that I can only describe as the Westminster dog show with booze. And on the one hand, I was just intrigued by this level of obsession. I mean, they treated wine less as a job than a way of life. But then there's also more personal concerns. So at that point, I was, um, you know, writing about tech. I was spending all day, every day at screens. And these sommeliers who reoriented their lives around these physical senses that, you know, most my tech crowd and I really ignored made me wonder what I might be missing, you know, because I train my senses. I get what they do in my glass of wine. And, you know, as someone who'd never felt her spirit moved by a glass of grape juice, I wanted to know what was the big deal about wine. You know, was it BS or was I missing out on one of life's fundamental pleasures? And uh, with, I was so affected and consumed by these questions, I ultimately decided to quit my job start over at the lowest of the low in the wine world as a cellar rat and start training as a sommelier. And that's a journey that took me everywhere from getting hazed and by, you know, hazed by aspiring master sommeliers to getting my brain scanned by neuroscientists. Well, it sounds quite like... Quite an adventure. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, exactly, exactly. Uh, well, tell me a little bit about, you know, when you started this, uh, how did your daily routine kind of change when you were training to become a sommelier? Well... Completely. I mean, I gave up coffee. I gave up mouthwash, uh, perfume, scented detergent, brushing my teeth at certain times of day, any uh, liquids above a tepid, lukewarm temperature, and most notably, uh, daytime sobriety. So as part of this routine, um, you know, it used to be I would get on the subway, ride down to my office around 9 a.m. I'd be sitting down to my desk for this editorial meeting. And around the same time, uh, I was most days, uh, you know, drinking my first glass of wine around 10 a.m. in the morning. Um, and it really is, you know, it was about developing my palate of learning through repeated exposure of these wines. And I wheeled my way into a lot of these very exclusive uh, underground blind tasting groups run by aspiring master sommeliers. And they whipped me into shape 
with uh, over the course of many, many, many glasses of wine, uh, many of which would be, you know, Tuesday, 10 a.m., uh, wine sipping. <laughs> yes, of course. Uh, I get that. Well, well tell me, um, what's your go-to bottle of wine and why? Oh, you know, I find that my, the, the wine that I'm most interested in trying is the wine I haven't ever tried. Um, so as part of this, I ended up uh, working as a sommelier with this guy who's such an inspiration. He's like a total mad genius pirate captain of the wine world, uh, total outlaw. And one of his mottos was to never drink the same wine twice. And I think it's sort of like books. You know, there's so many incredible books out there. And of course, we have our favorites that come back to and they change over time or they change us. Uh, But at the same time, there's just so many great books and likewise wines out there to try. Um, Right now, I'm I'm excited by... uh, Pinot Noir from Germany, but you know, next week it might be something else. I think that's fun, and there, there's such a variety out there now, and such access to that variety as well. Oh, absolutely! And I will say, you know, if you're listening to this and thinking that you probably, you know, that you don't have a favorite wine or you won't ever have a favorite wine, um, I will say that you know, at the outset, I, I mean, the only thing I ever got out of a glass of wine was drunk. Uh, and I, you know, now it's a pleasure uh, that is not only physical, but it's intellectual and it's emotional. And that's something that any of us can do. I mean, for me, that whole deprivation routine with sommeliers was really supplemented with the science of the senses. You know, I wanted to both complement the traditions with also pulling back the curtain on parts of the world, wine world that hadn't been explored as much. You know, that's science, the high end and the low end. And what I will say is if you want to begin to have that experience to, you know, get on the path to actually having a favorite wine, you can do it. Any of us have the skills it takes to be a terrific taster and smeller. You do not have to be born with the ability. Well, that is good to know. I, I love that fact that you can kind of, you know, learn your way into it, which is really kind of a great thing, especially for, uh, for wine drinkers that there is, there's hope for you that are drinking the Boone's farm. Um, uh, what was I going to ask you? Uh, I was interested in you began this journey uh, because of your interest in, in this subject and kind of doing something different. But when did that kind of morph into a book? Well, I think that as a journalist, um, you know, I'm always thinking about stories and things that, um, you know, could inform that. I mean, even when I go to dinner parties, I have my ears open. So, it was something that I was going to do one way or another. I mean, I think that there's times in life where things just find you and very unexpectedly trigger something inside of you. And for me, this world of sommeliers and you know, cork dorks really managed to surface something that I, until then, had managed to bury deep inside. It was this sort of nagging doubts about the sterility of my life itself as a tech editor. And, you know, I really was determined one way or another to, to pursue that and to really understand how I could live more fully. Because I, I also was very intrigued to learn that you know, most of us really ignore two of the five senses that we've been given to make sense of the world. Um, taste and smell, ever since Aristotle and Plato decided they didn't matter, uh, have really been dismissed. 
um, you know, there's this idea that we, that, you know, taste and smell are the animalistic base senses. And this world of cork dorks just throws that logic on its head. You know, they believe that beauty and flavor belongs in the same aesthetic plane as beauty and art or poetry. Uh, one of my good sommelier mentors, you know, described a, a glass of wine that can make you feel small like a you know, painting. Um, and I have to say, I did kind of roll my eyes at that at the beginning, but it is uh, something that I have since discovered for myself. No, I think that's amazing that the, this these senses and this way of viewing the world uh, can open multitudes to you. Um, I think that's in- incredibly interesting. Um, well, I think, you know, I mean, just on that note, I think we've all heard of mindfulness, right? And I came out of this valuing this other mindset that I would describe as sensefulness, which is this idea that it's by turning into, which is this idea that it's by tuning into our senses that we learn to make sense of the world. And something I've experienced anecdotally, I mean, not only can I find the, the stories that exist in the glass of wine, but it's also, you know, there's more information just about the heartbeat of the place that I live. And I ride the subway, I can sort of know the stop that I'm at just by the smell of it and made me aware of, you know, these real differences and richness that exist. And I also will say, you know, I, again, as I mentioned, I, I really wanted to figure out what was BS and what wasn't. I wanted to hold myself to those standards. And so at the end of this all, I got my brain scanned by scientists, uh, which was a, a replica of a very landmark study on wine expertise. Mm-hmm. And it shows not only that we can improve our senses, but also why we should bother to do so. And what you see is that for amateurs, flavor doesn't really evoke that much activity in the brain. But when you start to put a little effort into those things, you activate the higher order parts of the brain responsible for memory, for learning, for complex thinking and reasoning. And it shows that these stimuli that used to float by unrecognized actually can be turned into information lots in as experience. I think it helps us develop a, a fuller sense of the world. And that's something we can experience, and you can actually see it in your brain. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, to switch, switch topics a little bit, uh, I was interested in your first book that you came out with, Original Copies, uh, which was about the rise of Chinese cities and architects there duplicating styles and uh, even monuments like the Eiffel Tower um, and, and sticking in, in their own Chinese cities. And I was, I was wondering how you got interested in that topic, because it seems kind of random um, at first. <laughs> so I, um, it started because I was studying in China, and um, I came across these, these cities that just they feel airlifted from Paris or London. Um, and what's interesting is that so many architects, in the West or who have been trained in the West dismissed them outright. They said, you know, these things, uh, they're tacky, trash culture, they're going to disappear. And the people who lived in them were so proud of them. They spent their life savings to live in a place that looked like Paris or Venice. And I wanted to understand why. I mean, why? China has a very rich architectural legacy all its own. Why would they do this? And I think, in a way, it is similar to Cork Dork, in that I think that both books sort of take a very traditional, ingrained narrative 
and say, hold on a minute, let's look at this a little differently. Um, like, are we sure that this is the way it really is? Um, and so with Quark Dork, you know, I think that that deviates from the very traditional wine world script, uh, pulls back the curtain on, on parts of the wine world that haven't been explored. And it, you know, really... Uh, holds up some of these inherited wisdoms and says, you know, the romance is beautiful, but the reality is way messier, way more interesting, uh, and way worth diving into. I, I like that. On, on that, that note, uh, what are some of your favorite writings on, uh, on subjects that are often assumed and that, that kind of break those assumptions? Are there any books in particular that you really enjoy that do that type of thing? Oh, that's a great question. Um, well, one of them for sure is uh, Susan Orlean's The Orchid Thief. I mean, it's a classic book, but it's one that I think a lot of us wouldn't assume that we need to read a book about orchids. I mean, you know, they're pretty flower, but uh, how does that affect my day-to-day life? You know, she, you come away realizing that the cosmos is contained in these flowers. You know, they have this history. They have this mystique, this wonder. Um, by the same token, uh, John Jeremiah Sullivan's Blood Horses, it's part memoir, part kind of ode to the horse, and it's a tough book to write. I mean, there's a lot that has been written about horses, but wow. <laughs> it is, uh, it's one that I think just makes you look uh, completely differently at them. Um, I mean, likewise, uh, Gay Talese's Thy Neighbor's Wife, um, which I think it just, the opening to that changed the way I thought about writing. Interesting. Well, this is awesome, Bianca. I, I wish I could talk to you more, but I, I know our time is short. Um, one final question for you. Uh, what are you reading right now, and, and what's next for you? What's the next subject you want to top, you want to tackle? Uh, right now, I am reading Mary Carr's Lit. So I've read uh, her other memoirs, and I'm um, looking forward to, to getting my way through this one. It's sort of heartbreaking. I mean, I um, I read it when I'm you know on the subway, and I have to sort of catch myself catching, uh, I catch myself tearing up occasionally. Um, but what is next? Um, well, I can tell you that uh, tonight I will be doing a crazy, very unorthodox wine tasting involving uh, food coloring and some weird musical experiments. Um, but beyond that, I'm looking forward to finding out as well. Oh, great. That sounds, I think the first thing sounds amazing, so uh, I hope yeah. that goes well. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, we're diving into... Uh, so. I feel like, you know, Cork Dork's a very different type of book about wine than one that has existed before. And so I like to do wine tastings that are very different from those that have existed before. So um, I'll be hanging out with uh, some, some wine curious people to talk about the science of the senses and the science of wine drinking. Oh, fantastic, Bianca. I hope that goes well. And uh, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. That was Bianca Bosker award-winning journalist and author of the new book, Cork Dork, a wine-fueled adventure among the obsessive sommeliers, big bottle hunters, and rogue scientists who taught me to live for taste. Next up, I'll be speaking with the Oxford University professor for the public understanding of science, that is Marcus de Sautoy, to talk about his latest book, The Great Unknown. 
Seven Journeys to the Frontiers of Science. How are you doing today, Marcus? I'm very well, thank you. Oh, great. So tell me a little bit about this book, The Great Unknown. How did this come about? Well, I took over this kind of strange new job in Oxford. Um, I'm the professor for the public understanding of science, which I took over from Richard Dawkins. Um, And uh, I thought it was such a funny title because everyone expects that I must know the whole of science, you know, and here I am to explain it to you all. And it kind of got me thinking, um, well, I certainly don't know it all. And actually, I don't think there's any scientist that knows everything that's known about science. Probably Newton was the last one. Um, But it set me off on this kind of thought about, well, could there come a point where science knows it all? Um, Or are there any questions that by their very nature may be beyond the limit of science ever to answer? Um, So I've sort of spent the last three years uh, thinking about this, writing this book, coming up with maybe seven, as I've kind of said, challenges, which might be things that will always be beyond uh, the ability of science to know. Which is really kind of an interesting way of framing it. And one of the things I enjoyed about the book is how you I utilized an object for each of your your seven points. Uh, Tell me about how that framework kind of came together and about some of your favorite objects that you got to work with. Yes, well, one of the um, first edges of knowledge I deal with is trying to know the future before it becomes the present. I think we'd we'd all love to be able to know that. Certainly, government is constantly asking scientists whether we can know that. Um, If you're making investments, you want to know. Um, And I thought kind of the ultimate symbol of kind of unknowability, unpredictability, was a casino die. So um, I, in fact, picked up this die in Vegas where I'd lost a lot of money trying to use my math to (laughs) to make some predictions. And um, and it kind of got me thinking, well, what? Why can't I know what this die is going to do? Because I, I know the math equations behind this. And so I, I thought it was quite a good way of, uh, for a reader as well to kind of um, have a, a good tangible object that they could take on the journey to, you know, some pretty tough science inside this book. Um, and I thought the object would help. So I think one of my other favorite ones, um, I was very intrigued by the world of quantum physics because mm-hmm. that seems to put real limitations on on what science can know about the behavior of um, particles. Um, So I actually bought a a little pot of uranium off the Internet. I mean, absolutely amazing what you can buy on the Internet these days. Um, And that one was my kind of object, the challenge of, you know, can I know when this piece of uranium that's sitting on my desk in front of me now, actually, um, is next going to radiate? When is it going to kick off a bit of um, radiation? And quantum physics says, actually, that's something you're never going to be able to know. Mm-hmm. We don't have a mechanism, and there may not be one. So, so I think that was one of my other favorite objects, as well as my beautiful red casino die. No, that, that's very interesting. And it, it's strange you had mentioned Newton before about being one of the last people to ever know everything that was possible. Um, do you think there are unifying theories out there that we just can't get to yet? Are there, there ideas that are coming about that may bring the realm of physics and math together in some way? I do. I, I think that um, the, the book is very much about what we um, know up to the, the moment now and how that's changed. And I think the lesson that we've learned is that uh, constantly stories kind of uh, glue together and unify and we find connections where we thought there, there were none. I mean, I think uh, Newton kicked it off with realizing that um, it's the same law that controls why the apple fell onto his head uh, well, if that, if that story ever happened, <laughs> as controls why the Earth um, moves around the sun. You know, the idea that both the small and the very big are controlled by the same laws. So, so I do think we're on a journey, which we haven't completed, to 
perhaps um, a unification of uh, the sort of way the universe works. But then the challenge will be, even if you have that unified theory, um, is it enough to tell us um, everything that we want to know about the universe? Or, or will, it, will there still be things that it can't tell us? No, I get that completely. Um, during the writing and the researching for this book, uh, were there any things that uh, stood out to you that surprised you about where we're at now and what people are working on? I think, uh, yeah, many, actually. And I, I think that, that was the joy of this book because it really was um, a journey for me. And I hope that journey was one that the reader will enjoy being part of because um, I, I certainly articulate the time and again, you know, surprise at what I'm learning and the changes um, uh, in my knowledge, uh, which I, I think, you know, I, I'm trying not to make this a book about, uh, you know, here I am with all my knowledge telling you about it, that it was a kind of journey with the reader. Um, and I think one of the most exciting areas was uh, one very close to home, which is uh, consciousness. What What is it about putting a load of atoms together inside your brain that suddenly makes these atoms have a sense of themselves and that they, uh, you know, that what makes me me? I mean, uh, that that was very exciting because I think we're in a really fast-evolving um, uh, time for this, this sort of science because, you know, Galileo had the telescope and that's what advanced our uh, knowledge of the universe so much. We've now got a kind of telescope into the brain, which is the fMRI scanner, the EEG, and um, what we're learning uh, year on year about the way the brain is behaving um, was a really exciting uh, sort of story to, to find out about and to, to, to write for the reader. Yeah, no, I can see that, uh, which is always astounding, that frontier right there. And then also on the macro level, uh, looking backwards to the Big Bang and people trying to find out or get as close as possible to find out what happened right then, if we can go back before that. Um, is that something that you think is possible at some point? Yeah, I think uh, that's uh, the chapter which is dealing with time. And I think, again, uh, I really learned, you know, there's kind of, there's a real changing uh, ideas about the nature of time that I think Newton gave us this idea that he thought time was some sort of absolute thing. Einstein certainly challenged that and made us realize that time, no, is relative. It can change according to how you're traveling, whether you're near strong gravitational force. But I think new models of time are really challenging whether time is, is as basic as we think. Um, you can rewrite the whole equations of uh, science and physics without mentioning time at all. So perhaps time is uh, one of these things that we call an emergent phenomena. It's created by us as we try to navigate um, our, our interaction with the universe. And it, it, maybe it doesn't have as kind of um, the absolute quality as, as we thought for so many decades. That's interesting. It's a, I was watching something recently about the, the history and all the branches of mathematics and that idea of emergent phenomenon for that as well, uh, whether or not how we understand the underlying mechanisms of the universe that has explained so much actually exist out there. I find that incredibly fascinating. Well, I, I think uh, one of the things for me as a mathematician, you see, my, my subject, uh, I, I feel, is right down there. That it's the bedrock of all science, mm -hmm. and um, very often, you know, science advances when it, when it uses the mathematics. Um, for example, you, I don't think you can understand quantum physics truly until you turn it into mathematics. Mm -hmm. But mathematics doesn't help you with everything. So, uh, you know, biology is probably uh, the one science that uh, I, I have most trouble with because it requires a very different kind of language. Um, 
if you're trying to understand, you know, why does a uh, flock of birds migrate every summer, um, well, reducing it to, uh, you know, Schrodinger's wave equation and mathematics isn't going to help you. Mm -hmm. You need a different kind of discourse and language. And and I think that's what this idea of emergent phenomena is kind of uh, getting at, that as you go up through the different layers of science, that sometimes genuinely new things can emerge which don't, aren't so easily uh, described if you just reduce them to the, the, the layer lower down. Interesting. Um, tell me about being now a professor for the public understanding of science. How's that experience been for you, and what do you hope to get out of it? Well, I think that um, it was a very far-sighted move of Oxford to establish this chair, because I think um, I kind of call it like being an ambassador for the world of science, um, Science is this kind of big superpower that is having a massive influence on society. Um, and it's important that society kind of understands the, the science that's happening around them because they're going to have to make political decisions about uh, this science. And, uh, and they'll be disenfranchised if they, if they don't have the scientific discourse. So, so I kind of see my role as trying to help create a bridge between um, you know, the fast pace and merging science from the lab um, and just helping people to understand it, um, both because it's exciting and fun, but also because it's politically very relevant. So, um, uh, so I think it's, uh, it's a really exciting role. I, I, I got to the role after having been, I mean, I'm a professor of mathematics in Oxford, um, but it was really fun to sort of be given the excuse to branch out beyond just mathematics. Um, and I think, again, that's an important new sort of uh, thing that's happening that if the scientists, the more that they talk to each other, the more progress we make. So mathematicians talking to biologists, to chemists, physicists, um, uh, that's, you know, all the low-lying fruit is kind of between the subjects. Um, So I've really enjoyed the kind of excuse to be able to go out and and look at the world of consciousness and find that there's mathematics maybe hiding inside there. No, I can see that. I'm envious of it. I think that's, that's, uh, that's incredible that you're getting a chance to do this and try and branch all these things together in interesting ways. Um, I feel very lucky indeed, yeah. <laughs> oh, great. Uh, I know our time is short, but uh, one final question. I was wondering uh, what you're reading right now and what's next for you. I, uh, what am I reading? I'm actually reading Moby Dick. Oh, wow. Um, yes, I, I decided um, uh, every now and again to just spend some time reading one of the great classics um, uh, just to to understand, you know, why... Why is this regarded as one of the great books of all time? And uh, sometimes I get a bit disappointed. I read Middlemarch, for example, George mm-hmm. Eliot's great novel, um, and I spent a lot of time with that book, and by the end I think that's the most overrated classic of all time. <laughs> um, but Moby Dick I'm really enjoying. So, um, uh, that, that's, and I, I think it's important as a scientist to enrich your life with uh, not just reading about science, but, um, but also uh, kind of mixing the, the, the arts and the sciences. I wholeheartedly agree. So that, that sounds great. Um, well, Professor, uh, thank you so much for speaking with us. A real pleasure. Thanks. That was Marcus de Sartoy, Oxford University professor for the public understanding of science and author of The Great Unknown, Seven Journeys to the Frontier of Science. Before that, I was speaking with Bianca Bosker, journalist and author of Cork Dork. And that's all we have for today. You've been listening to the Writer's Forum on WRBH 88.3 FM here in New Orleans. You can catch our show at 4.30 p.m. on Thursdays, Saturdays at 8.30 a.m., and Sundays at 1 p.m., depending on the Tulane baseball schedule. 
You can also find all of WRBH's interview programs online at soundcloud.com slash wrbhreadingradio, as well as on iTunes and Google Play. I'm David Benedetto. Until next time.